Brianna, in honor of the World Economic Forum happening right now in Davos, what would be your favorite insect meal? Plate of, plate of crickets? Crickets are supposed to be legitimately good. What, like, do, you, what do you put them on? Honey? Peanut butter? Um, I think the idea of kind of roasting them so they're crispy with like a, a salty, hot kind of seasoning would be ideal to me. I don't like the idea of sweet chocolate dipped crickets. That, that doesn't appeal you to me. You know me. I hate spice. No spice. <laughs> I don't know that about you, but I am not surprised to learn <laughs> about you. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Brianna, what's going on? Well, leftist YouTuber Vouch will be with us to discuss the Andrew Tate scandal and more. So be sure to, to catch that conversation. Also, Reason Magazine's Elizabeth Nolan Brown will be here to explain the sex trafficking charges against Andrew Tate. Robbie, we have a very Tate-centric show today, it looks like. (laughs) We really do. Apologize to everyone in advance. Sometimes that's just how the bookings work out. Uh, But before we get into that, we do want to discuss more about what's going on at Davos. Just like us at Rising, Elon Musk is having all sorts of fun with the elite gathering for the World Economic Forum. He tweeted this poll. Should the World Economic Forum control the world with about 2 million votes in, 86% said no, roughly 14% said yes. Now, there's always, there's always going to be trolls on Twitter. Trolls stay trolling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, was, this was shortly before the Tesla CEO blasted the forum as, quote, and it's increasingly becoming an elected, an elected world government that the people never asked for and don't want. Right. It, it's not. It's. I mean, the, some of the people there are elected on behalf of their own sure. governments, but they're not elected to run everything else. Yeah, Kirsten Cinema's there, high-fiving Joe Manchin. It's a big party. Yeah. You're just. Oh, you must have been invited. delighted to see that. It was the highlight of my week. Very happy. <laughs> oh, there was a semaphore had some great reporting on the things going on. Apparently, Scaramucci hosts some kind of. Remember him? Oh yeah, the, Blast the, the past. once and future press secretary. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He hosted some kind of party. And I guess he usually hosts it, but he couldn't host it last time because he was busy training for some reality TV show. Like a dance show or gotta, something that uh, requires... I should have had this ready to go. i gotta, I got to look this up. Uh, so should, I, should I Talk while watching? I look this up. <laughs> i got to start watching Dancing with the Stars again to catch the, the mooch and then see his, his it was It was like balance. some secret agent reality show. I can't find it. All right. Well, meanwhile, Fox News star anchor. I didn't make it up, though. I read it. I, I believe swear. you. You're a trustworthy fella. <laughs> Fox News' is Tucker Carlson. He says the World Economic Forum exists to destroy national economies. Let's watch that. And, and this is our new favorite, the so-called World Economic Forum seems to exist to destroy national economies. Not an overstatement. It was the WF, keep in mind that told the government of Sri Lanka to give up modern fertilizer. Oh, good plan, guys. Go ahead and try it. Result? The country collapsed and people starved. Then it was the WEF that promoted Sam Bankman-Fried's historic Ponzi, the biggest financial fraud in history. Apparently, the savants at the World Economic Forum just couldn't tell that this twitchy, pill-popping kid in cargo shorts, who literally played video games during interviews, was an utterly transparent scammer. They had no idea. They thought he was a genius, just like them. And, of course, it was the WEF that predicted the COVID lockdowns would, quote, quietly improve cities, not turn them into ominous hellscapes of unemployment, drug addiction, and crime. It seemed like a good plan at the time. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's prevent people from working. That'll make them rich. It'll quietly improve life for everyone. That's the World Economic Forum for you. And we talked about yesterday uh, how uh, there was a panel about the existential threat of disinformation hosted by Brian Stelter and featuring Seth Moulton, who's a Democratic congressman and the publisher of the New York Times and a European Union person. 
and they, uh, they, they really did position disinformation as the central conundrum that mankind must face and that everything else stems from that. Yeah, look, I don't... It, what's so funny about Tucker Carlson's critique there is that it's what the left has been arguing since time immemorial. The whole point of the, the case against neoliberalism... And Tucker case Carlson, against, actual leftist. You're going to get in trouble for this. <laughs> I don't know if I said exactly Let's, that. I think Brianna said that. Can, uh, can we... <laughs> look, it's like the whole point... Of, the, the, leftists argue that neoliberalism uses these kind of economic... Um, carrots and sticks, mostly sticks, to bully particularly the global south, but all kinds of world economies into playing by this corporatist elite-driven financial game that benefits elites. So the idea that that these these big multinational organizations have been forcing particularly people in the global south to move away from their traditional um, agricultural trends, that they flooded the, these environments with overflow clothing items that have wrecked their textile economies, the idea that they've we've suppressed the minimum wage in Haiti, that the crisis in Ukraine is part of the same kind of IMF um, bullying, where the Ukraine was, was torn between this choice of having a closer economic relationship with Russia or joining the European Union and uh, adopting the austerity politics that the IMF puts on all of these other countries. And it was leading toward Russia, and that's when we have a coup. So what he's describing there, I think, is right and accurate. Even the point that he's making about cities, I, I disagree with some of his hyperbole about some of the lockdown stuff, but the reality is that elites did exploit the COVID crisis to make all kind of real estate land grabs. The they, Great they, Reset. That's they what bought they up, it. Yeah, they bought up all of this um, property from people fleeing and have jacked up the prices and are sitting on it empty while homeless people fill the street. Now, Tucker Carlson and I have a different emphasis. He'll say these homeless people are in the street and that's terrible and they need to be... I don't know, dealt with in a way that I wouldn't deal with them. I say the homeless people are there, and it's terrible because it's a moral crisis, and they don't have to be homeless. There are homes that are sitting empty because real estate developers are flipping them for profit and keeping them empty for millionaires who don't even live in the country for most of the year. So there's not, there's a lot of truth in what he's saying, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that kind of criticism of elites to be there. The question is, what do you do next? Where do you filter all of that anger? Is it at homeless people? Is the anger going to be at people who are relatively powerless, or is there going to be a real critique of the millionaires and billionaires who, frankly, are more likely to move in Tucker Carlson's I mean, that wasn't circle a, than not? Well, but yeah, but that wasn't a rant at homeless people. That was directed at the World Economic yeah, no, Forum. That's this, where this, the anger this, is being this, concentrated this time. right now. But what does that mean from a policy perspective? Is Tucker Carlson going to support a wealth tax? Is Tucker Carlson going to support any kind of policy that is going to undermine the ability of these extremely rich and powerful people to interfere with democracy? Is he going to support getting dark money out of politics? Is he going to oppose, he oppose Citizens know. United? That, that's, that's my whole issue with Tucker Carlson. I'm, I don't have the same, I think, liberal critique of him that a lot of other people do. I appreciate the populist notes that are getting hit here, but what becomes coercive and a problem for me as a leftist is that he is capturing genuine frustration and genuine populist energy, but not telling people what they can do to actually target the people that are are being criticized in these segments outside of rhetorically and then channeling that anger to the people who are closest to you, which is, you know, immigrants, homeless people, you know, the the black people in your work environment that you think got an edge out over you in a, in a promotion or whatever it is, you know? Well, I can't speak for Tucker Carlson, I, so I can only speak for what I don't like about what I'm seeing at Davos, which is, which is not even all of the policy. Some of the policy ideas I would probably support, others I absolutely don't support, but it is the way... The, the, the contempt they have for the rights of people in their own countries to decide on what policies fit them, it is becoming a kind of—it's it, not a, a global government because they're, they're more— 
talking about ideas that they're going to then go bring home to their home countries. But um, it's very, it, it's, it's not respectful of local customs and traditions of where other countries are at. Um, it's, very, it's very elite consensus oriented. And some of these elite consensus are just, is consensus or consensuses? <laughs> Consensi? I was going to go with it. <laughs> are, just, uh, are just really all over the place and, and really wrongheaded. Uh, I, I've thought that a lot about the elite COVID consensus. And then the elite consensus that controlling the discourse is what we need to do to fix everything. That I, I just keep returning to the discourse. Information yeah. obsession. The 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 problem they think they have to fix before they can tackle all other problems is the ability of people to disagree with them. That is the central yeah. thing they're trying to stop. they everything else is on hold. They said disinformation the central problem. After they fix the problem of people being able to say whatever they want online and complain about them and criticize them and and maybe stumble across ideas that are wrong or confusing or bad, they're going to fix that first. And then they can do whatever they want. That's their attitude. I think that's a very that's a threatening from democracy standpoint. That's a threatening from free speech well, yes. standpoint. Both free speech and democracy are incredibly threatened by billionaires. I'm sorry, this is the subject of my radar today mm-hmm. as well. If you have people that are rich enough to buy the biggest papers in the world, and an influence, they say they don't influence content, but when you are owned by one of the wealthiest men, men in the world, there is an obvious editorial consequence to that. If you are rich enough to fully fund an electoral campaign because you're the ninth richest person in America, like uh, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, and you're able to just wedge yourself in late in the game because you can blow $2 billion of your own money and not have to rely on fundraising from the people or get any kind of public buy-in to run a campaign. It, it didn't work for him it this just time. all that money. But the, the, many people believe that the reason Bloomberg got into the race was not to win the campaign, but to be there as a potential third-party alternative candidate and just in case Bernie Sanders won. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't have to buy into that rationale. I don't know. I think he was, in some way, he was helping Bernie in the primary. In, not intentionally, but he was splitting the, he was splitting the non-Bernie votes, he, well, right? No, because no one actually voted for Bloomberg except for the people of Guam. But speaking of billionaires, Joe Biden, the man who did win, got more financial support from billionaires than anybody else in the race, including Donald Trump. So like it or not, these dark money packs, these these undisclosed donations, are are helping these elites. So elites are not bad because they eat arugula or like wear a monocle or whatever. Elites are bad, not for these kind of Our vibey steam, reasons. Steampunk elites. <laughs> right? That sounds cool. They ride in airships. <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's not the problem. The problem is that they have financial interests. They're not just like bad people, and many of them are not even like nefarious, but they have financial interest in pursuing. Right policy goals, political goals that are not aligned with your interests. They, I mean, if they channel those interests into providing better good, better goods and ser- services for the world and they making don't. us better off, they won't. Well, they do sometimes. They don't. <laughs> they, they, don't just, they don't only make money through confiscation of it. I, I'm sorry that you were making an argument that they do charity. You're, you're saying that no. they actually contribute the, value to the world. The yeah, that's not the issue. They provide. Sure. The question is, and I get into this on my radar, when you really wrap your brain around what the difference between a million and a billion dollars is, and then what $120 billion or whatever Bezos' current wealth is, and you look at the fact that what, what was it? The top 1% has captured half of, the, uh, half of the world's wealth generation over the past mm-hmm. two years. You have to ask yourself, do you think they add so much value that they are so 
um, beneficial to the world, that they are worth more than half of humanity. You don't think Amazon are they worth half of humanity? Are they worth half of the human beings that of the the eight nine billion people who live on this planet now? I mean, Amazon is one of the greatest things ever invented. I think that that billions of people's lives are worth more than than Jeff Bezos' contributions to the planet. And I think that there are untold contributions to the planet that we will never learn about because billions of people are living in substandard conditions and will die in substandard conditions. And that's, that's their, their lives wouldn't be better off without Amazon. <laughs> their lives would be worse that's, off. That's not the question, Robin. And that's that's not the question. I mean, why is that? Why is that so difficult? Like Amazon can do wonderful things. Wow, I can get a package in two days. That's great. Like that's a wonderful thing. I like Whole Foods. Okay. But there are billions of human beings, but it's, billions it's not a, it's and billions not a, of billions of people. And, and Jeff Bezos can have $10 billion, $20 billion, $30 billion, $40 billion, $50 billion. You, he can have more money than he can ever spend or do anything with. But what we're basically saying as a society is that on principle, not because anybody needs it, not because they, you know, but on principle, that a person should be able to allow, be able to have an infinite amount of money, no matter the cost, no matter how many Amazon workers are dying in the back of their cars from heat stroke, heart attacks, peeing in plastic what? bottles, living off of government assistance because their salaries limiting, aren't enough to actually support limiting, their lifestyle. Putting a ceiling on Jeff Bezos as well, I don't care. I okay, don't care. Great. What I want to do is make sure whatever influence and power over government policy he can buy with that wealth is limited. By limiting that's the, a, such the a good point. So that's what I'm concentrating on. What, what is being point, done with the policy? And that's the, the fact that the, he generated that wealth by providing great yeah, goods that's and fine. services that's, that's is exactly a good thing right. to celebrate. That's exactly right. And, and, and the, we should really make this point clear. The wealth tax that leftists advocate for is not because we believe we need to get that money to pay it to the poor. I know that not everybody believes in monetary theory or various other kinds of economic systems, but we don't actually believe that you need to tax to spend. You can believe what you want. It's not material to this conversation. But what's important to note is the reason that leftists are so invested in a wealth tax is because we do believe that that huge aggregation of money leads to anti-democratic actions, like billionaires deciding they could run for president. Tom Steyer was also in the race. There were multiple billionaires in those race, or feeling like they could in 2019, 2020, or that they can buy elections the way that, that Joe Biden was frankly bought and sold by the billionaire class and is now not fulfilling his basic campaign promises because billionaires write letters to him saying, mm, we don't want a $15 minimum wage. Mm, we don't want you to defend real workers when they go on strike. And he, comp- he complies every single time. So that, that yeah, is the I, real threat to the democracy. I, right. But I would fix that by putting limits on what can be done with that power through what government can do to harm their competitors or limit give them bailouts or do all that. Limit dark that, spending, that like dark money campaign No, li- limit, what, what are they trying to actually buy? They're try, trying to buy regu- favorable regulations. So you want no regulations at all, which is great because that's what the billionaires want to. No, they want lots of regulations. No, they don't. Their comp- they want regulation on, the, on no, their they competitors. Don't. They want laissez-faire Facebook wants more. Facebook wants more regulations because it'll harm all the competitors more than Facebook. Walmart wants no. higher minimum wage so that all the mom and pop stores go out of business. Time and time again, they, they, they want government. They know all the regulators. They've gone back and forth with the company. They say they go to Davos and say we want regulate. They want it because they write it and they're in charge of it. Rigging. And that's look, what I want. Of, to fix. of course, there are ways that rich people can rig the rules that advantage no. small players in the field. That's why we have anti-monopoly law, for instance, a regulation that is designed to defend uh, a, a lot less, of those entrenched monopolies. People. I'm sorry. They often and, the, and those rules are written uh, often end up entrenching the very monopolies they're trying no, to. No, you only get those bad regulations, again. Robbie, when you allow the kind of corporate capture that is enabled by the fact that these people can spend an unlimited amount of money getting government and you get employees. You get it when you give the government to tons of power want. to set what the rules are for these. Okay, companies. well, if you think that living in, 
I'm sorry. This is again. I mean, it goes Yadis to fundamental Yadis disagreement describes between this us. as techno feudalism, which is what is happening right now, which is that there is such an aggregation of wealth at the top, disproportionately among these technology companies, that they are able to put us in a, a feudal peasant relationship, the kind of which capitalism was supposed to enable us to escape from. But that's the world we're heading into right now. And if you believe that suddenly releasing the floodgates and allowing all of these corporations to do exactly what they want is going to increase prosperity for the, the, the half of the, the population that has great. as much. The technology has made us more no, free this is than not, ever. We're not talking about the technology. We're talking about what the technologists. Talking about? We're talking about the corporatists who have all of that money, Robbie. No, you keep trying to insert. I'm not mad at Facebook. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at the fact that I can be on my computer right now. I'm mad at the fact that the person who made this computer has more money than God okay, but a lot of and is using that power. Have been don't you hate Bill Gates? Aren't they could you get mad about all that vaccine corruption? Aren't you mad about yeah, the fact I'm that Yeah, I'm mad about that? the policies. I'm not mad that he made a lot of money from founding but the, Microsoft. He, he, how, why do you think that and Bill he Gates... Wouldn't have, and, and Microsoft Robbie, exists because you could make money to Robbie, create it. That's why like do you think Bill Gates market. has influence? Because he's just a great public speaker? He has influence because he's one of the richest men in the world. But it's what he can... I mean, we're going around this world, so we got to wrap. <laughs> all right. I'd say it's what he could buy with that influence. But we'll get into this more on my radar. Both of our radars will be coming up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, according to a study pu published earlier this week by Oxfam International, the richest 1% of people claimed nearly twice as much wealth as the rest of the world put together over the past two years. Now, I use the word claim here purposefully, just like I'm pretty sure that the Oxfam report used the word bagged instead of earned this wealth. The reason is because the word earn suggests some relationship between the work done and the compensation provided, and both the sheer volume of wealth and the method of wealth acquisition completely belie the idea that this wealth bore any type of proportional relationship to merit, ingenuity, or true contributed value. It's difficult to even conceptualize the difference between a million and a billion dollars. They both seem like a, uh, like a lot of money to people like you and me. But a million seconds is about 11 days. A billion seconds is 31 and a half years. Here's a visual guide if, if that helps. In my last video, I counted 10,000 grains of rice, where each grain of rice was $100,000. And that was to show you the scale of a billion dollars. Well, a lot of you guys asked me, well, how much does Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos have in terms of rice? So that was my mission. I went to Target, I bought a digital food scale, I came home, and then I weighed the rice that was worth one billion from earlier. I did the math in my head and I went to Costco. I got the rice, I brought it home, and once I brought it home, I went to work. I also wanna say that I have five families that are gonna take this unused rice, so it's totally not wasteful. Okay, so the moment you've been waiting for, 100K, 1 million, 1 billion, Jeff Bezos has 122 of these, or 58 pounds of rice, if each grain of rice was 100K. Like, look how big this is, guys. Now, many people see that enormous volume of wealth and ask, is it possible that someone's contributions to society, that their work, labor, and effort are so significant that they merit having so much when others including those whose labor enabled the success of those businesses, have so little? Is it right that Amazon workers are passing out from excessive heat while delivering packages or dying from heart attacks on the job, while Bezos has more money many times over than anyone in the history of humanity, more than he could ever hope to spend, enough to buy newspapers, fix prices, and undermine the democratic process? 
If you think Bezos earned his wealth, well, here's something else to consider. Billionaires make most of their money through asset appreciation. Stuff they already own becomes more valuable by virtue of time passing, interest rates growing, etc. They avoid taxes by avoiding any sale of their assets, instead borrowing against their wealth to pursue new ventures. While ordinary Americans make just north of $50,000 a year on average and are enduring the longest period in American history without an increase in the minimum wage, Productivity has steadily increased since the 1950s, only now in the past year experiencing its first little slump. And what have workers gotten from all of that labor, all of that productivity? Nothing. The gap between CEO pay and worker pay has ballooned from about 30 to 1 in the 1950s to over 300 to 1 today. All of that productivity, all of the wealth that they generated went to the top 1%. And during the economic crisis of 2020, major corporations begged for and received government handouts to the tune of $4 trillion. The justification for the bailouts? Protecting workers. See, CEOs were supposed to keep their employers on the payroll and keep the economy going. But while welfare checks uh, come with work requirements and all sorts of government oversight, Corporate welfare comes with little oversight indeed. I mean, technically, any money distributed via the CARES Act Federal Reserve Program was supposed to come with limitations, no uh, stock buybacks, caps on executive compensation and the like, but that's not what happened. Most of the money distributed via the CARES Act was not subject to any restrictions at all. Billionaires like Kanye West got PPP funds, while as many as 27 million Americans may have lost their health insurance in 2020 as a consequence of losing their jobs. As food costs and energy costs have surged for ordinary Americans breaking the bank to make an omelet, billionaires have, profits, uh, have profited, in fact, from that. The Oxfam report shows that 95% of food and energy corporations have more than doubled their profits in 2022, with $306 billion in windfall profits, 84% of which was paid out to wealthy shareholders. The Walton Dynasty of Walmart fame received $8.5 billion just this last year. Indian energy billionaire Gautam Andani saw his wealth grow by 46%. And excess corporate profits have driven at least half of inflation in Australia, the United States, and the UK, according to economic experts. There's a direct relationship between the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. All that new wealth is being earned. But the workers who earned it are getting a smaller and smaller piece of the pie. Elites paint a portrait of zero-sum competition between black and white, poor and rural, city and urban, working class people of different political orientations. But all of that is to distract from the real theft, which is top down. Bezos's paper runs article after article about petty theft from drugstores, while wage theft employers stealing from their workers remains the most common and voluminous type of theft in the country. And as The Lever recently pointed out, where there's a profit announcement for elites, you don't have to wait very long to see who pays. Microsoft here is increasing dividend payments to wealthy shareholders. Well, what do you know? 10,000 workers at Microsoft are getting laid off. Thank you very much for your service. Quite the system we have here. The richest 1%, again, grabbed nearly two-thirds of all new wealth, $42 trillion, created on the backs of American workers. This is just since 2020. And what do elites have to say about it? Well, over 200 millionaires are asking Davos elites to raise taxes on the ultra-rich. 
These are comparative pores, at least as compared to the billionaires in attendance at Davos, but they seem to understand that the swelling economic inequity is leading to social instability that will ultimately wreck all of their fortunes. It's simple common sense economics at the group in an open letter. It is an investment in our common good and a better future that we all deserve. But the American political machine seems not to have gotten the message. Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are high-fiving each other over blocking the very filibuster reform that could have enabled Democrats to actually deliver for the working people they pretend to care about. Meanwhile, Republicans are doing what they always do, cut taxes for the rich under the guise that doing so will help average Americans. Take, for example, the Bush tax cuts, which increased the budget deficit and shifted the tax burden from the rich to the middle and working classes. Look at this chart of the taxes the rich have had to pay over time. Clear downward trend. This time, Republicans, Republican elites rather are targeting the IRS, which has itself targeted lower income people for audits. But instead of fixing this problem by going after wealthy tax cheats instead of the poor, Republicans are exploiting a real problem here to justify getting rid of the IRS and its ability to audit the rich altogether. Without funding, the IRS will not be able to hire the skilled auditors necessary to handle the complicated tax maneuvers that rich people use to get out of paying their fair share. Look at how audits of millionaires have plummeted along with IRS staffing and budget cuts. Moreover, House Republicans are advocating for a flat tax, which would uh, limit taxes on individual and corporate income, capital gains, payroll, and estates, instead taxing gross payments for the taxable property or service at 23%. In effect, this is an, a regressive plan that insulates the rich and their non-income-based assets from taxation, while middle-class households would likely see a net tax increase according to a tax policy center analysis and a treasury study performed during the Bush administration. Simplifying the tax code is a good idea. Bernie and Elizabeth Warren both had very simple tax plans for a wealth tax, 3% on wealth earned after that first measly billion dollars. The legislation would ensure a 30% audit rate for the super wealthy. Sounds like a plan that actually addresses the problem with the IRS. But elite corporate-bought Republicans seem not to want that. They just want to launder their own get-rich-quick scheme via the legitimate concerns of working-class Americans, who are, in fact, currently victimized by the IRS. If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, it's because the root problem of inequality in this country never really changes. Only the excuses for why we shouldn't focus on them do. We have got to have more discipline when it comes to identifying distractions and misdirections and figure out ways to pass the policies working people actually want, not the weaponized working class identity politics elites use to launder their own agenda. Well, we need to stop doing the corporate welfare. I, instead of, you know, having more IRS agents and trying to recoup the money that was given to corporate interests and wealthy people that shouldn't have been, we should just end those policies and stop doing it in the first place. No more bailouts. It should be both. No more. Okay. It should, I, <laughs> it should be both. <laughs> it should be. But, but you see how it's, it's like unnecessary, like we're creating work for ourselves by, I mean, you, you agree. You, you oppose the, giving them yeah, all the money the, in the first the place. The left but, wasn't advocating for corporate bailouts no. during, during uh, Well, neither COVID. was, right, neither but, was the libertarian right. Right, but th this is what happens in this country. In order to get the pennies that the regular people got, your little fifteen, you know, sixteen hundred dollar check, little child tax credit that it, that ends after a year, 
temporary housing moratorium, stuff that really meant a lot. I don't mean to minimize it. But those were crumbs compared to the sums that elites got. But that's how it goes. We can get something sometimes, but it's grandfathered in along with the must-pass legislation that the rich insure for themselves. That's why I think that some of the stuff that the uh, Republican Freedom Caucus folks have held out for and wanting to separate out bills, and so their single-issue bills, is, is, is a good, a good innovation because it prevents— on some level, it could hypothetically prevent wealthy people from sneaking their agenda through on the backs of poor people. But rhetorically, that's still happening, right? I think, look, you know, I've said this in a radar, I've said this a million times. The IRS is not doing a good job. It is focusing on the poor. But it's not doing so because it's like rubbing its hands together saying, oh, yeah, I want to go get poor people. It's because that's what it has the resources to do using the, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of like more cursory uh, types of audits that they can do for people who are just, they're just, have very simple tax filings. So if you want to change that and you don't want to let rich people off the hook, you're going to have to have some mechanism. You don't have to call up the IRS. I don't care if you in the IRS and start a new program, but you can't get away with ending the only program to audit rich people well, under the guise have to have, of helping poor if people. If you're going to do tax collection at all, you need people to collect taxes. Yes. I want people to keep more of the money that they actually earn for themselves and not receive in the first place money that was given to them by the gut that's by the government, it's not the government's money because the government doesn't make any money, just confiscates ours. And those, pro- which is, by the way, what you know, Americans, actual Americans, right, left, and center, all want. They, they, no one supports bailouts for the big banks or for the airlines when they, and then they don't even do what they say they're going yeah. to do with that money. And then we have these uh, airport, we have these traffic jams because they got rid of all the pilots anyway, and et cetera, and all that. So they and, don't, and they because, never do. And because they didn't invest in their own company, yeah. they didn't invest to yeah. update the, the scheduling technology. But they just can't be trusted. We South, have to stop Southwest. this policy of just giving them, I say, oops, you screwed up, here's a bunch of money, and then expecting them to. Yeah, but, but, but here's that, part of the but. issue regular people don't have enough money. That is why they're so much reliant on government subsidies. Regular people are not getting the same compensation for their productivity and labor as they were 50 years ago. And there is a direct correlation between the shares that are going to workers and the increase, the, the diminished shares going to workers and the increased shares going to the super rich. So if you don't want the money to have to be filtered through this complicated tax system and then redistributed to poor people, if you want poor people to actually be able to live and have a living wage, then you have to advocate for policies that put constraints on wealthy, the wealthy who have been no. using their power to buy off Congress and yes. to get a favorable tax code and to get favorable legislation that enables them to not have any um, to, laborers to not have any leverage in the workforce, which is why laborers had such a good deal, comparatively good deal back in the, the 50s. If you want to rectify that, if you want to go back to the good old halcyon days of the 50s, you have to address all of the policies that we have today that prevent that outcome. Yeah. As long as you, I mean, you, you still. You know, we've been advocates for, I was very interested in something like what Andrew Yang proposed, the, you know, minimum basic income to help, uh, to, to help poor, poor people or mid, and even middle class people have a minimum standard of living. Something that is simple because the more complicated it gets, the more it seems that powerful people can gain whatever why, why it is. Not, why not force companies to pay people what they're owed? I, I'm, not, I'm not against a... a a minimum you, income of Andrew Yang style program or a guaranteed living, o- a living wage. They're not, there's no, 
the value of their labor is whatever they're willing to get for it. And that's exactly why you have to do labor organizing, because all of these CEOs sit there and will honestly tell you on their earning calls that they think that the wealth that they have accumulated on your backs is not from you and your contributed labor. And the only way that you can force them to pay you what you actually are owed is to organize your workplace and threaten to withhold their labor. And we'll see how much they can earn if you don't show up fine for people doing that. That's that the only way, the... collective action. Because you see, there's, there's no one who's fighting for you. That's, that's the way it is. Okay. That, that's, well, that's fine. I don't object to any of that. And I also object to how a lot of wealthy corporate interests get their money by rigging the system against everyone else. They have more access to power and the writing and creating the structures that allow them to get that wealth. So I'm against all that. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> We're going to leave it there. <laughs> leave it there. Before we um, open, <laughs> peel any more layers of this onion. I can't wait to hear about your special bonus radar next. What's on your radar today, Robbie? Well, Brianna, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention played a direct role in policing permissible speech on social media throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. And I obtained confidential emails that show Facebook moderators were in constant contact with the CDC and routinely asked government health officials to vet claims relating to the virus, mitigation efforts such as masks and vaccines, And I'm going to show some of these never-before-seen emails. What they help prove is that the federal government shaped the rules of online discussion in unprecedented and unnerving ways during the pandemic. Now, this has become much more obvious over the past few months, of course, following Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Musk granted several independent journalists access to internal messages between the government and the platform's moderators, which demonstrate concerted efforts by various federal agencies, including the FBI, the CDC, and even the White House, to convince Twitter to restrict speech. These disclosures, which have become known as the Twitter files, are eye-opening. But Twitter was hardly the only object of federal pressure. As these emails I'm about to show you make clear, health advisors at the CDC had significant input on pandemic-era social media policies at Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, as well. CDC bureaucrats were consulted frequently, at times daily. They were actively involved in the affairs of content moderators, providing constant and ever-evolving guidance. They requested frequent updates about which topics were trending on the platforms, and they recommended what kinds of content should be deemed false or misleading. You've seen the Twitter files. These are the Facebook files. In May of 2021, CDC officials began routinely vetting claims about COVID-19 vaccines that had appeared on Facebook. The platform left it up to the federal government to determine which assertions were accurate, as you can see here. Facebook's moderators note that some of the above claims would already be violating an implicit admission that the CDC's opinion on the other claims would be a deciding factor in whether the platforms would restrict such content. Facebook was clearly a willing participant in this process. Moderators repeatedly thanked the CDC for its help in debunking. Claims vetted by the CDC included whether COVID-19 is man-made. The CDC told Facebook that it was theoretically possible, but extremely unlikely. For months, it was meta policy to prohibit users from asserting that the pandemic may have originated from a lab leak. The platform revised this policy around the same time the above email exchange took place. By July of 2021, the CDC wasn't just evaluating which claims it thought were false, but whether they could, quote, cause harm. Then in November, the Food and Drug Administration granted emergency authorization for children to receive Pfizer's COVID vaccine. Meta proudly informed the CDC that it would remove false claims, i.e. the COVID vaccine is not safe for kids, from Facebook and from Instagram. 
Meta also provided the CDC with a list of new claims about vaccines and asked whether the government thought they could, quote, contribute to vaccine refusals. The CDC determined that this label applied to all such claims. So it's important to consider the ramifications here. Meta gave the CDC de facto power to police COVID-19 misinformation on the platforms. The CDC took the position that essentially any erroneous claim could contribute to vaccine hesitancy and cause social harm. This was a recipe for vast silencing across Facebook and Instagram at the federal government's implicit behest. Meta frequently gave the CDC lists of pandemic-related topics that had gone viral, seeking guidance on how to handle them. And the CDC informed Meta to, quote, be on the lookout for misinformation stemming from specific alleged misconceptions. Meta also kept the CDC in aware of criticism of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the White House's COVID advisor. One email warned the CDC that Facebook users were mocking Fauci for changing his mind about masking and then about double masking. The CDC replied that this information was, quote, very helpful. And now, if the tone of Meta's communication seems extremely friendly, it's worth noting that staffers viewed government employees at the CDC as their colleagues. They used that word to describe them. In one email, Meta discussed providing said colleagues with access to a reporting channel for COVID misinformation. The list of individuals with access included CDC staff, as well as employees at Rheingold, a communications firm advising government health agencies. So this is just a snapshot of the messages exchanged between the CDC and Meta. They were numerous. They also had regular conference calls. The CDC, of course, we know, was not the only arm of the federal government engaged in this work. White House staffers also castigated Meta for not deplatforming alleged misinformation fast enough. President Joe Biden himself accused Facebook of, quote, killing people in July 2021. One wonders whether these condemnations from Biden and others in his administration, which included the specific threat of punitive regulation if demands for greater censorship were not met, influenced Meta's decision to delegate COVID-19 content moderation to the CDC. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. All all of these reports pointing to the closeness of the relationship between government actors and and these very influential web platforms are illuminating. And they're illuminating largely because so many things were gotten wrong and the incorrect takes from the government were amplified through these censorship policies. I guess my only question, my, my only little point of pushback here is what should have been done? Like what, what, who should Facebook have been looking to, to, prom- to promulgate, to develop its policy with respect to COVID or any other kind of misinformation? Or should it not care at all about misinformation and allow everything carte blanche. I, I'm not, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just asking what you're thinking about this. Because hypothetically, like in the abstract, if you had asked me a few years ago, if you had asked me before these real big goofs from the CDC, I would have said, well, it makes it makes perfect, perfect sense for Facebook to not try to be opening like medical journals and figuring things out. They should ask people who have expertise and the CDC is a neutral government body and why, why not go by what they say? Well, I think years ago, we would have, or many people would have said, of course, the CDC is a neutral government body. Now we know better. We know that while a lot of the guidance put out by the CD was probably correct and probably helpful, um, some of it was uh, was debated. Uh, there are other 
expert people. Other, there are other doctors who disagree with some of the recommendations, particularly relating to um, children and how long they went on uh, for schools and for masks. Now, the CDC will always defend itself, and Fauci will always defend itself by saying, look, we were just giving our opinion. This is our guidance. This is our recommendation. It's up to you what you do with that. We don't have any, we're not compelling anyone to do anything. But what we found was that so many government agencies would, were just outsourced it to the CDC. Whatever the CDC says is what we're going to do. And I think it's interesting. You know, you can take, you can interpret this however you want. I think it's interesting that Facebook essentially had the same policy. Facebook talked to the CDC every day. Every time new stuff appeared on Facebook, they emailed the CDC and they said, what do you think about this? How should we handle this? What's your opinion on this? Yeah. Over and over and over again. And look, again, maybe you can, you can say, I'm sure some people will conclude, that's fine. I'm glad they did that. I just want people to know that that was how their decisions were made. They emailed the CDC over and over again. They had conference calls with them. They let them know what was going viral and what people were saying. They were in the loop to a, a great degree. And, and then eventually, at the same time, you have Joe Biden saying Facebook is killing people. You had a, 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 a Kate Bedingfield, I think is her name. She was a member the of the press secretary. Uh, the old press secretary. She went on television and said, yeah, if they don't take misinformation more seriously, sorry, we should change Section 230 to punish them. Mm -hmm. You have all of that uh, in public threatening going on. And yeah. then behind the scenes, you find out that they talk to them every day. Well, Maybe they feel like they can't do not but listen to the well, well, that's that's the thing and some of this has come out with the twitter files where yeah. you see actually a lot of pushback you've made this point and and that they feel a lot of pressure from the administration and it almost feels as though i'm not trying to you know uh let the let the tech companies off the hook but it does feel like the the baseline issue is that there is all this pressure from the government yes to conform and that there are real risks per the the section 230 threat to not Complying, and there's a kind of there's a way that consulting with the CDC seems like an effort to avoid liability, more so than kind of like a fetishistic obsession with just doing what the CDC says. And given that there is this government pressure and this interest in avoiding any kind of liability or culpability for what might happen because misinformation during a pandemic that was killing people is spreading through your platform, I almost have a little bit of a difficult time in this instance, at least, saying. You know, this is this is a Facebook problem. This is a Twitter problem. It, it feels like a Biden administration problem. Not to mention that. No, the latest, I agree with. I completely agree. The, with the latest Twitter files job. You, you made this point as well. There's, it's it's doc. It's CDC people. It's doctors being mad that they were lied to by other professionals in the government. You know, so there there is this. I don't know. I, I just want to complicate yeah. this, the narrative. Not not that you've been been promoting this, but there's a narrative that kind of says. You know, there's like an evil cabal of like government actors and and left leading um, media giants and doctors, and they all wanted to do a misinformation and suppress your speech. And what it what it actually feels like is the government trying to avoid liability by having a maximalist approach to all of this. At the same time, it creates liability shields from the pharmaceutical company. All of the tech giants trying to avoid liability um, by just doing whatever the government says, and a trickle down effect where the only people who actually pay are the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. And, but also, I think there's something to be said for the fact that the, like, the CDC does not have expertise in like what the rules of the discourse should be. Sure. They, they have precise medical knowledge. So, you know, it was one thing, even, even when we go back to the Trump era, you know, when Fauci was one voice in the room telling Trump, well, here's what my opinion of, is of the pandemic and, and what should be done, 
And, and, and back then, he was more, Fauci himself was more careful to say, look, I'm not, I, 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 the, the president has to weigh a bunch of different factors. Mm-hmm. You know, how costly, how destructive will it be to our society and our economy and our defense if everyone is stuck in their homes for weeks? Sure, he, he's, he's judging that based on input from other people. I'm giving him the disease side of things. And then he or the other relevant decision makers get to decide. And that was appropriate. Yeah. At some point, it, it veered way too far in one direction where it was just... Okay, whatever the the health bureaucrats say is what is going to be done, and yeah. and and they don't have a you know they don't have an expertise about I mean they they about you know the, what the First Amendment doesn't quite apply here because it's a private company yeah. but about how how a climate of open inquiry and free speech we think is good for arriving at truth and not accidentally suppressing things that seem controversial but well, end up but being the, But the consultation with the CDC wasn't saying, what do you think our content moderation policies would be, should be writ large? It was saying, should we ban this kind of speech? Should we ban right. this kind of messaging because it's not medically indicated, right? right? Which, which, again, all, all I'm saying is, I wonder, unless you think there should be no content bans whatsoever, which is a position one could take. If you think there should be some limitations at some point, maybe only in an exigent pandemic-style crisis, who should be asked? That's that's just yeah. the next-level question. Like, if, if we all agree that the CDC has demonstrated an inability to be consistent where we want it to be, who who should who should Facebook and the well, I think that the most eye-opening email for me was when Facebook asked them— Eventually, they're not just asking, you know, what do you think about these claims that that we're seeing appear on the platform, but do you think they could theoretically cause vaccine reluctance? And then at that point, they were talking about, you know, vaccine reluctance for getting children vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And the CDC responded, well, well, anything that's not correct could theoretically make people not so. So the implication of that was going to be a pretty far-reaching silencing of— I mean, the advice, the CDC's advice isn't— Wrong. It, it is. Tr- it is true. I mean, to your point. I mean, it's true that any any kind of thing like that could. Cause well, although about that stuff, I'm not. I mean, the the I I think the debate over whether and what the relative trade offs are for young children to get vaccinated is is more fully being discussed and debated, and really ought not to be have been suppressed at all. Um, I mean, now the CDC itself is, as you just yeah, alluded I mean, to, the, is upset about information the, that the, was held prob- back about boosters. The problem and- is that the idea of vaccine reluctance caused an overreaction mm-hmm. across the board. It feels like one of those um, those finger traps that people, kids used to play with. I don't know who went first, but it's kind of a, a kind of paranoia on one side or the other. Some people who are immediately just anti-vax zealots, some people who are afraid of anti-vax zealots, caused there to be a constriction that that eliminated all any and all nuance so lessons learned (laughs) well great discussion thank you so much brianna we will have more rising right after this stay with us last month former kickboxer and self-appointed masculinity guru andrew tate was arrested in romania for alleged human trafficking and sexual assault tate and his followers believe he is the victim of a conspiracy to silence him because he quote goes against the system Tate has often referenced the 1999 film The Matrix, favorite of mine, in saying that The Matrix, a global network of tech platforms and governments, are out to get him and are behind the entire criminal investigation. Tate's lawyer, Eugene Vidniak, distanced himself from his clients' claims when asked about them in an interview last Thursday, saying, quote, I have a serious profession, and I didn't ask my client about this Matrix story because I think it is something on media platforms. The matter doesn't have anything to do with my activity as a lawyer. Joining us now to discuss is YouTuber Vouch. Welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. How y'all doing? We're doing all right. Look, we, we've talked about 
some of the charges um, in other segments today and, and over the course of the last couple of weeks since this happened. What's your read on Andrew Tate's fundamental appeal as someone who is more online? His lawyer might not be interested about in what's happening on the Internet, but the only reason any of us are talking about Andrew Tate is because he's able to establish himself in this community. So what do you make of his appeal? Yeah, it's obviously not much of a legal defense, but that refuge and conspiracy is really popular with people caught in wrongdoing, you know? Um, when you're, and it seems like the evidence against Tate, you know, at least from what we have now is um, compelling. Uh, there's not much you can do except suggest that you're the victim of some grand conspiracy. Of course, there are conspiracies in the real world. Usually these are conspiracies that favor the wealthy and powerful. Tate is both wealthy and powerful. It's just funny that you would use what is essentially the language of the critique of power to suggest that you, somebody who lives in a mansion with, what was it, 32 cars, are somehow the victim of systemic bias. It's pretty silly. I thought it was really interesting when he was describing um, his philosophy and that, that he the car only has value to him because someone else would, would want it. And it, it's the it's like the social competition or something between men, which gives like life its satisfaction. I thought it was very very sad kind of way to go about your life, to like only want things if someone else would want them. It would only have any value or meaning to you. Um, but obviously this, I, this has to resonate with a lot of people, I think a lot of young men, um, maybe those who have not, who don't, ha who envy the wealth that a Tate type figure has or, I, his, or what appeared to be or seems to them his easy access um, to women. Uh, you know, why is that a winning uh, message? And like, what's the answer to that? I think a lot of young men feel very anxious about what they imagine their role in society is. They don't have a good narrative for how they should behave. Um, there's a kind of inconsistent juxtaposition between the values of what one might consider a modern and sort of a traditional guy. It's a difficult tightrope for a lot of them to walk. So sometimes they find refuge in like audacious or ridiculous archetypes of masculinity. For example, this Tate thing, this miserable idea that the only like worth you can get out of life is trying to impress other men with the stuff you spend money on, which in real, like in reality, this is like rat race ideology, like enjoy nothing, just consume, buy listen to the ads, whatever you're told to do, do it, because some guy next to you with a smaller car, you know, is, is going to get jealous. Ridiculous. But this is, you know, as destructive as it is, it is an archetype. And I think people will fall back into these, um, these like, uh, what they imagine to be kind of ur-masculine traits uh, if they feel that's the only way they can express their identity. And there's a lot of that, too, that's wrapped up in this, right, right the idea that Right, tech and it's alienating or something. And it, and this is popular in a certain uh, 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 strain of conservative thinking that you know we'd be much happier, you know, on farms or ranches or something with more traditional lives and raising animals and having wives that don't work and that whole kind of thing. Now these arguments that this would be better and, and it's so much better it should almost be forced on everyone is always coming from what I would describe as like the most online people of all, like the people <laughs> that I don't believe. Like you can't stop tweeting for five seconds, so how could you turn your own butter? But uh, it is a pot, there is, this is a kind of, of thinking that it seems to be overlapping with a kind of, of, of conservatism that is a little bit different from old school kind of, you know, 80s social conservative. Um, it's interesting. Is it? Well, it's a little bit You don't bit think different. that the rise of this kind of trad popularity is a Well, it's socially conservative, but there are differences. That. 
And in a lot of women, we should say, are buying into it, too. I mean, it seems to me that the social safety net has failed people in various ways and that they're looking for alternatives. And I think that's very understandable. They're responding to a really real material reality. You can't support a family. There's never a wife's social safety net, though. Well, the wife's social safety net was their husband's. Mm-hmm. You used to be able to support a family on one salary. The idea of being a stay-at-home mom didn't necessarily mean the kind of economic precarity that it means now. Um, you know, you, people lived closer to their families and in communities. And there are plenty of women who find that to be appealing as well, especially since sexual liberation for some women has meant that you are sexually liberated, you can have sex, but that you're not getting, you know, you you have lost out on the idea of the kind of traditional partnership and financial security that you got in yesteryear. Now, I think that those, that's a little bit of a warped version of the the reality that either, neither situation is necessarily ideal, but it seems to be fundamentally the problem is that people don't have money. And, And the marriage contract was always fundamentally about financial security. And people are looking, it seems to me, for some substitute for that. And now that those relations have been broken down, I don't know. What, what do you make of all this, Bosch? No, no. I mean, I, I agree. There's a reason why, you know, the rise of Nazis in Germany followed the uh, Great Depression. Um, the undermining of the narrative of men as breadwinners has historically been used as a, um, uh, like a, a, um, a catalyst for reigniting other perceived avenues of expressing masculine identity. Unfortunately, sometimes in, in quite destructive ways. You know, you talk about these trad identities. There's nothing trad about Andrew Tate. You put him up against, mm. I don't know, John Wayne or any older archetype of masculinity. He looked like a clown. Um, he, he, he prances about like, I think the early 2000s term would have been a metrosexual or something. There's, there's not really anything like um, uh, archetypically Let's not denounce metrosexuals. <laughs> Oh, but hey, listen, I don't shame that. I'm just saying there's nothing fundamentally trad about it. My right. man built his money off of crypto, right? I mean, this is this is hardly like an like an archetypal return to the farmland. Um, speaking of, have you ever churned butter? It's actually really difficult. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's difficult about the rejection of modern sort of alienating elements of the, of the social fabric that we live in. Social uh, social media, you know, um, the rat race, the idea that you have to uh, engage in conspicuous consumption or to get ahead of other men. But these are all things he promotes. So there's an interesting inconsistency in this like trad lifestyle versus, okay, well, here's the actual stuff you have to do. You have to live in the city. You have to like trade the crypto. You have to spend all your time online. And ultimately, this dissonance, it's going to make men miserable. It yeah. is making men miserable. Do, it do you think causes problems? You know, what about that criticism of social media that it is so alienating or that it, it lends itself to some kind of rat race? Because obviously, we criti- Brianna and I criticize a lot of social media policies and, and various things. But I I think social media has improved my life, at least. I mean, I have a, a, a talk show on that's only possible because of YouTube. <laughs> I have interesting conversations with people because of social media. I'm much more connected to d- different people all over the world and different ways of uh, life. I'm more connected to people who share my interests that in communities and forums that I wouldn't have known anything about in, in, an, in an era without this level of internet connectivity and and that's probably that's true of a lot of the you know the people we're describing who who they themselves seem to think they're so miserable but i think might have been pretty miserable just living on on you know a far, not having a, a kind of people or having isolated. a having a forced community just the community of people you happen to have grown up around i think there's a lot of value to what social media offers us and finding niche communities and people you never could have found if you were limited to your own in real life community 
I think the issue is, you know, what people are driven to through uh, dopamine drip feeds is not necessarily what's good for them in the long term. It's very easy to stay inside, make 20 friends off of Twitter or Discord or whatever, and talk with them fervently every hour of every day you're not working. Um, but it can't really compare, I think, to the satisfaction of a good meal with a good friend in person. And the more people are driven to what's easy, the more they might be driven away from what's actually meaningfully satisfying. I think we can fix this by doing more to make the real life appealing. You know, we have fairly unwalkable cities, unlivable um, urban environments that don't really appeal to people. And it's expensive to go out and hang out with people in real life. Whereas stuff online, it's almost always free, except for, I guess, like a game subscription or the internet uh, subscription itself. Um, we've made online life easy in a lot of ways, but not necessarily good. And that dissonance, I think, is growing increasingly um, alienating, especially, I think, for younger people, where this, you know, the, the vulnerability to that dopamine drip feed is a lot greater. And it might be even more difficult to communicate interpersonally because, you know, young, young people are anxious and nervous in the best of days. Why make that situation worse by giving them an easier but ultimately less fulfilling way out? Mm. Well, to bring this back to Andrew Tate, just for a moment, on Saturday, Romanian authorities raided Tate's compound, confiscating about $4 million worth of luxury cars, 15 in total. You were asking for that number earlier, Ravi, in addition to some expensive watches. You were saying earlier, uh, Vaush, that this doesn't seem to be a, really a traditional kind of masculinity. It's about conspicuous consumption. And I made an argument there that I found compelling, that this is an effort to fill this void that's been created by... I think, a kind of material deficit that exists as people have fewer and fewer resources to create the kind of lives that we were taught we'd have when we grew up. But my question to you is this. Why do you think it is that while there are a couple of people on the left who seem to be resources for men who are flailing in this way, uh, people like ContraPoints have tried to use you know, their channel to help people, break people out of these kind of ideologies. Uh, Michael Brooks used to try to reach out to disaffected people who are moving rightward, young men in particular. But for the most part, it seems that these figures, the Jordan Petersons of the world um, and others like Andrew Tate, do seem to be right-leaning. What do you think the left is failing to offer uh, in terms of an alternative um, substitute to uh, this, this kind of material void? Well, I think here in, in the States, or maybe the West broadly, the left has a history, at least recently, of operating as an ideology to the benefit of the dispossessed, you know, to speak to the interests of oppressed peoples, uh, to talk about what they need, what they want, what they're suffering from. Um, but recently, especially, I think, attributable to the rise of the Internet, we've seen an increase in the popularity of a lot of left-leaning populist ideas. And I think it's time for us to understand that we aren't just some marginal niche ideology uh, for people who might not be able to find representation elsewhere. We're a winning ideology. And winning ideologies have to provide narratives, stories, and answers to everyone. Everyone has to be a part of it. You know, you can't have a victorious political movement, which is composed entirely of a minority of the population, right? You need to get at everyone. I think the left could do a much better job of understanding, it's in line with basic intersectional theory, um, that men are also in many ways victimized by standards that were created to benefit them. The idea that men should be breadwinners, for example, yes, may have economically privileged men for most of modern history. Um, but right now, today, it also causes a lot of grief and woe. You know, I have a red death of a salesman. It's not exactly an entirely one-sided um, social standard. And you can see this Andrew Tate thing, right? He said, and I, I believe he said this directly, he doesn't enjoy sex or food. 
um, the pleasure he gets from everything is just doing better than other men. It's at the face of it, miserable. I, I can't mm-hmm. imagine a more cursed existence than deriving all of your pleasure from perf- outperforming other rich guys, you know, like which, you know, like wh- who gets the next car faster. Um, this is uh, a 100% just a sort of mutated and hyperbolic expression of the warped standards that guys are sometimes held to or hold themselves to. If the left can't find better solutions, better answers, ways to assuage this narrative, give them a better road to walk down, then it's not surprising to me at all that other guys, guys like Tate, who I don't think have men's best interests in mind, would swoop in and take advantage of that narrative to sell their own poison. Do you think there'll be a tipping point? I'm thinking particularly of the fact that Candace Owens has come out very strongly saying she does not think Andrew Tate did it, which is a different thing from saying, I don't know, we'll see what the courts decide. She firmly is avowing that Andrew Tate is innocent of all of the things that he's been accused of. Do you think the right can take this too far and some of these figures can be so kind of aberrant. Um, you know, the things that you're saying about how they don't seem to enjoy sex. There are all of these memes, you know, is having sex with a woman, get woman gay. Like there's these weird perversions of what it means to even like, be what? masculine. Yeah. Really oh, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like, ew, go, you know, performing certain sex acts on a woman is gross. It's 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 bizarre. It's bizarre. It's, the, the kind of sex acts that were portrayed in, in the, the Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King Memorial. <laughs> <laughs> Hundred percent. Good callback. But yeah, oh I mean, God. Oh no. There. Okay. Yeah. That took me a second. Yeah. No. God. What a, a statue. What a of the profane. What a, what a testament to man's love for his wife. Um, but yeah. Do you, do you think that, that they're going too far? Is there going to be a backlash at some point? That there, there might be. The, the far right needs this because, like, you know, um, the way Steve Bannon talked about how he used to approach people online, right? You target incel communities. The right benefits from young guys who are sexless and angry at women because historically, I mean, God, look back as far as, like, industrialization's gone. Um, that is, like, the bedrock of far right populist movements. You get guys who are angry at their place in the world. They feel like society has failed them in some critical way that we must return with a V instead of a U to tradition. Um and this, this just, this pattern keeps repeating itself. There has to be a breaking point, though. Swear to God, the way some people are talking about Tate, I feel like if Epstein had branded himself as a right-wing culture warrior guy mm-hmm. six months before he died in prison, that they would have been, you know, ah, the Matrix got him too. I, I, I don't know how much of a limit there is to this exactly, but at the end of the day, you know, we do. There is a rubber band effect, and we do return, I think, fundamentally to some some basic values regarding empathy, the humanity of women in particular, which I think mm-hmm. is disregarded quite often by Tate and his family. And if you pull that string too far, I mean, it will eventually snap. A movement yeah. like one supported by that ideology is completely unsustainable. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to go full Candace Owens here. I have urged a little bit of caution because I don't, like, intrinsically trust what the police ne- necessarily have said about the situation. What the police would say about any situation. There has been other, t- you know, things are routinely exaggerated by the police to, they say there's some underlying criminality and it ends up being not quite that. I think the guy is certainly a, a creep and the things he says are misogynistic and I am absolutely, it would not surprise me to find him convicted of or that there's sufficient evidence that he's guilty of at least sexual misconduct and possibly worse than that. I, I just, I do believe in due process and I'm waiting for more information about the situation, even though it looks sketchy to oh, me. Oh, for sure. I ain't no DA or anything. I'll just say, if ever you could imagine an ideology of a sex trafficker, you got that one nailed down right mm-hmm. there. You know, um, he's my man's laying out a bullet point. It's like an, you know, an acting coach gave him. Hey, can you act out a sex trafficker? How much can you hate women? You know, I want to see. Give me your war face. He's definitely got that all lined up. 
obviously you'll go where the evidence follows. You know, we'll see how the yeah. investigation goes. Though it's worth noting as a very wealthy and powerful man that if ever there was any bias, it would generally be expected to be in his favor, not against him. Yeah, it's worth um, no noting that he says he moved to Romania particularly because they have weak rape laws. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's he's <laughs> actively courting environments that are going to continue to 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 invest him with privilege relative to his environment and relative to the women that he is interacting with. So I didn't mean to cut you so off. Could have gone to Somalia, I guess. Could have, could have played it even safer, you know? Yeah. Went off to Antarctica. The, the bigger the gap economically, in particular, between you and the rest of society, the easier it is to buy off courts and get your way no matter I what. Know, but, you, you, but you guys share some skepticism with me, with the libertarian of, you know, the police narrative it's is not one the thing. I haven't heard a police narrative. They've charged him with a crime. I'm not reading a police report here. I'm reading Andrew Tate's own statement in no. his website well, about right, who he his, is and what he likes to do. The question is how closely that's his persona. And maybe it is absolutely reflective of exactly what he was doing. Again, I am not I am not defending him or ruling out that they convict him on exactly what they've said. I just, you know, I don't know. Uh, you were you were in it with him. I see. No, <laughs> uh, no, I, obvious, I'm, I'm sure this I'm sure it'll take years to to, to, to work it all out. I, I believe some transcripts have come out of him essentially admitting to like um, like tricking. It was, it was doing the uh, the boyfriend method. Right. This was something mm -hmm. associated with some grooming gangs where you'd like you bring desperate women over and you're like, oh, yeah, no, I love you. You're perfect. Whatever. Hey, since you love me so much, how about you do a little something, something for me, some camic? You know, you get them tattooed, you get them in a compound, take away their passport. Kablamo. Um, it's a, it's a pretty popular method. I mean, obviously it's, it's, I, we just have like early transcripts and, and some leaked messages to go off. Of, and but, grooming you know. has become the top agenda of conservatives to prevent everywhere. We, I'm hearing this term constantly. And yet, uh, ostensibly, yes. It's a branding not, opportunity to call it grooming, I guess. Well, the, the, many of the people who are anti-grooming are supportive of yeah. Andrew Tate. That's the issue. People like Candace Owens, who spend a lot of her program talking about, licentiousness on the left and drag shows and how Kim Kardashian right. is a whore and all of this. But don't you don't you think a lot of that is BS? What is BS? The like everyone is the the grooming narrative that these all yeah, well, drag I think it's people projection. are. I think it's it's. So, oh, so there is a lot of grooming going on. Of course. People... There's sexual predation all over the place. Kids are getting molested all over the place. It's a horrible, sick, sad world. The question is, who is doing it and why is there no interest in it when it's People's uncle, their family members, their close friends, that's who it's, who's normally the, the victim or, or the perpetrator. It's suddenly it's only an interest when we can pin it on Hillary Clinton in a pizza shop or, or you know, Joe Biden. I mean, I understand, like, there's political motives, but, like, mm -hmm. or, or drag drag performers or things like that. I mean, it's did you did you watch the Andrew? Well, I should I should ask you this, Vash. Did you watch that um, the one six documentary on HBO? The, oh, yes, I did. Yeah. And oh, this, oh, the bit at the end, right? Right. There's there's a guy who spends yeah. the whole movie talking about groomers and how much he hates them. And that's why he hates Biden and he loves Trump. And then there's like a reveal. I mean, it's out there. I'm not oh, this it. is the who's that guy? What's Andrew his name? Callaghan? Callahan? Oh, I saw you did a bunch of videos on he's, him recently, didn't you? Oh, he's he's in a little bit of hot water himself. But it's it, the, the bit like at the end of that documentary. Just, just a smidge. But, but he did that documentary, the bit at the end, you know, you got this QAnon guy screaming, you know, everyone's a pedophile, this crossing guard's a pedophile, that bird's a pedophile. <laughs> it turns out the man's a pedophile. Eight-year-old, too. That was the yep. victim. Not a not a ambiguous case for him. Right. Um, you do see a lot of this. Uh, and, and there's a lot of rhetoric, too, that makes me feel like, I mean, they're really doubling down on that division. Matt Walsh, for instance, has said, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't have a pedophile problem. It has a gay priest problem. Mm. Um, if you take a look at the stats on where, like, child abuse and how it takes place or whatever, you know, it's, it's actually really easy to know 
what you can do about it, right? Uh, sex education and that, like, Me Too uh, kind of stuff. You know, believe, take seriously claims, listen to people, try not to let parents have, like, total, uncontested, complete authority over children and their minds because that environment can make it easy to abuse them. But conservatives advocate for that stuff. So, you know, you got to be careful about where this all leads. Um, well, I think conservatives then, are worried about teachers having exactly what you just described, the, you know, the ability to instill in them values or norms contrary to what the families want. Well, that, Only think- if they got a rainbow flag up on the wall. I ain't never heard <laughs> any conservatives complain about teachers being domineering about any issue other than that they might support gay people or Well, I know. We've hear- heard complaints about liberal CRT. bias of teachers for forever, Race. even predating the current panic over... Yeah, but I, I think there about are, just there are bad teachers for sure. Absolutely, yeah. I just don't think the that the logic of grooming and real grooming. I don't mean like this fake like grooming is when you teach somebody something. I mean like actual predation. That's got nothing to do with being gay or trans or whatever. Um, it's a legitimate vulnerability when you have environments where there are people with power over people without. You've got people like Tate with a lot of money and power of the ability to transport women around, take away their passports. You've got teachers around children and parents around their children. The consistent logic, the best way to fight all of this, I think, is the basic application of some feminist values concerning uh, respect for bodily autonomy, the idea that you have to value consent, and a lookout for people who are engaging in predatory behavior. Tate makes money off of selling that predatory behavior to millions of teenage boys. The downstream effects of what he's taught people will end up having a far worse consequence than any sex trafficking charges they can pin on him. The total number of women abused will go far beyond whatever he has in his compound. That's what I'm mostly concerned about. It's the spread of that poison and mm-hmm. what can be done to stop it. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Vosh. We appreciate you spending so much time with us here today. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it, even though it's awfully early here on the West Coast. (laughs) All right. Hopefully you can get back into bed after this. We'll have more rising (laughs) for you next. Despite being arrested for alleged human trafficking and rape in Romania last month, former kickboxer and self-appointed masculinity guru Andrew Tate has continued to gain followers across various social media platforms and has received support from several right-wing media figures. Tate's predominantly male following believe he was arrested because he is, quote, going against the system, what he calls the matrix. Joining us now to discuss is senior editor at Reason, Elizabeth Nolan-Brown. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So you wrote a couple of years ago a great uh, story for Reason Magazine, where I also write um, about uh, police efforts to grapple with sex trafficking and how they were butting up against some important civil liberties that were being violated. And I was trying the other day to explain that to Brianna, why I not not to defend Tate whatsoever, but why I would be just like a little cautious about you know before just believing everything that was said about sex trafficking. Uh, accusations. And I, I felt like I wasn't explaining it very well. So I said, why not just bring Liz on to explain it since she wrote the story? So can you help us understand, you know, what has happened in the U.S. context, at least, with uh, with efforts to prosecute or go after you know, alleged sex traffickers? Yeah. So, yeah, like, I, first, I want to say that I don't have any special insight into the Andrew Tate case, and I'm certainly not here to defend him, per se. 
But I, I am here. I can talk about why so many people may be defending him, aside from just the general disbelief about people you like accused of crimes or the fact that some men are never going to believe accusations made by a woman against a man anyways. Um, I think part of it also, though, is that the reality about sex trafficking in the U.S. is these cases are very frequently bogus. And stats about how common it is are very frequently just entirely made up. Like you said, this is something I've been writing about at Reason Magazine for years. A lot of what gets publicized as sex trafficking busts in the U.S. just wind up being prostitution busts with adults trying to consensually have sex with other adults. And very often it's the sex workers themselves who wind up arrested and charged and wind up with the most severe consequences. Um, for example, take the Florida case that got a lot of attention a few years back um, because it busted Patriots owner Robert Kraft. There was this huge media blitz describing it as a sex trafficking bust, saying hundreds were arrested in a sex trafficking sting. Homeland Security helped install um, surveillance cameras inside these massage parlor rooms. And then ultimately, no one was ever charged with sex trafficking or anything even remotely related. A bunch of men were charged with soliciting prostitution. And then actually, most of these charges against the men were dropped. So the only people who ultimately got punished and, and got punished severely were the women who worked at these massage parlors and provided the sex acts. And so many sex trafficking cases in the U.S. end up like this. Right. And it, I right. think it's important to note in that case and others, it's not they were not being held against their will. Yeah. They were not you know, being like chained to a basement or something. These right. were like, people who were consensually, you know, offer, exchanging money for sex. You know, you might some people think that should be legal and think that's wrong, et cetera. But it is not it, it wasn't forced on anyone. And that's a, that's a huge difference in, in my mind, at least. Right. Like in the Florida case, you know, these women were all in the United States legally. They had um, either green cards or they'd become U.S. citizens. They had their massage licenses. They were all in their 40s through 60s. So it was very different than this picture that got painted in the media. Um, and, you know, often sex trafficking rumors on social media end up being false, too. It's amazing how often police are having to put out these press releases like no sex traffickers aren't snatching up people at your local Walmart or Target or things like that. So, you know, you can see why people are skeptical of the Andrew Tate charges, even even if it's not necessarily true, no matter what's going on in this case. You know, authorities are basically the boy who cried wolf about sex trafficking, and they've been crying sex trafficking on so many things that aren't sex trafficking for so long that it can be kind of hard to take them seriously. Uh, Elizabeth, what do you make of the fact that it doesn't seem like there is a, a prostitution element? You describe that one of the problems with the expansive definition of sex trafficking is that it often ends up hurting or, or punishing the people who are, you know, the women, the people who are, um, you know, working in this situation as opposed to the, the folks who ostensibly are in the position of power and exploitation and control here. And this situation does strike me as something that's somewhat different from that prostitution scenario, where Andrew Tate has been accused of kind of abusing, using fraudulently inducing, um, coercing women who are particularly very young. He said that he prefers to date 18 and 19-year-olds. There's some, you know, people might read into that, that that's, a, that's a, playing very close to the line, um, you know, but that they, he uses younger, impressionable people, uh, again, enables them, you know, gets them into his sphere of influence, um, creates a kind of a financial uh, reliance between the two of them and is able to get them to do whatever he wants them to do. And he said as much explicitly, right? He brags about how much control he has over these women and what he can do to these women. 
you know, is when you look at the fact pattern of the Andrew Tate case, does it strike you as the kind of case that typically gets kind of wrongly characterized, um, or, or sorry, the kind of case that sex traffic, you know, the sex trafficking rules are inappropriately applied to, or does this seem like a more appropriate uh, use of that kind of charge? Well, like I said before, I don't, I don't know what to believe about this case. I mean, I know that there are women who have made allegations against him. I know that a couple of the women who worked for him said, no, none of that is true. So I don't want to presume to know anything about what was actually going on there. I will say that a lot of what you just described actually is the kind of police spin we hear about so many of these cases, even when it's actually just women engaged in consensual sex work. So all of the things you said are often narratives that we do hear from well nar- from narratives media. aside th- these are just quotes from andrew tate like that's that's what's so interesting about this case there doesn't need to be speculation about what andrew tate believes he was doing he went online and talked about and wrote about on his own website that this is his strategy with how to coerce women i mean he's he's very open about that this isn't me projecting right. and, and again, the question like that, yeah i don't think that that you know being a manipulative person being a bad being a bad person is not necessarily sex trafficking. So again, like, I don't know if this fits the thing, but I do want to say that I'm not saying that he's innocent either. I just say, I don't know. And the fact that there has been so much blurriness though, about what sex trafficking actually is, makes it easier for people who are doing something wrong to get away with it. So I think that if, you know, if he is, was actually guilty, then he is benefiting from the fact that we have really blurred the lines about what sex trafficking is. So it makes it easier for him to say plausible deniability and like, no, you know, I'm just a victim of this of this thing that's been happening in the media and politics for a long time. And, and, and it's, sorry, just real quick, it is worth noting that he's also been charged with rape and running an organized crime ring. So even if the sex trafficking yeah. claim is just kind of a cherry on the on the indictment, there's a lot else here. Go ahead, Robbie, I'm sorry. Yeah, and I wanted you to speak to efforts, again, in the U.S. at least, to, to go after, you know, alleged sex traffickers and the massive violations of, you know, free speech and civil liberties that have taken place because of that. You've written about the, the shutting down of places like Backpage and Craigslist, um, uh, internet sites and forums that were totally complying with law enforcement and were actually helping to turn over when, when really bad, like actual people were discovered, they would ha- they would absolutely participate with law enforcement. Um, but that ended up being used against them, and it, it's just been this total witch hunt on, in, in the on- online context. Yeah, and I think that you know part of the big problem with this is we're wasting so many police resources just arresting adults who are trying to consensually have sex with each other or arresting, you know, like you said, websites that maybe were letting adult sex workers advertise for for legal sex work or for maybe prostitution, which is, you know, which is a crime in most of the United States, but is not what we think of as sex trafficking, which involves minors or force or fraud or coercion. So we have so much resources going towards fighting that, that you aren't having the resources there to actually catch the bad guys. So it's like a double problem where you're both, you know, violating everyone's civil liberties, violating the rights of sex workers, and not making anyone safer and actually making things worse for the people who are actually victims of right. And they don't even they don't even prosecute the quote unquote bad guys in the situations where they are, that they are breaking up. They prosecute the women. Yeah, I think right. that's all very legitimate with respect to people who are in a traditional sex work uh, scenario. But again, I think it's worth just reading some of the, the facts about what Andrew Tate's particular fact pattern are. This is from a, a, a Vox piece. Andrew Tate once said he moved from the UK to Romania because, quote, rape laws are more lenient there. 
Um, he, this is what uh, he has said about himself. Tate has probably admitted to some version of the charges already. The self-proclaimed king of toxic masculinity told the Daily Mirror that he and his brother once operated a, quote, total scam business in which 75 women were paid to talk to men for $4 per minute and where the Tates would pocket most of the money. Um, uh, the, the, the charges, this is a little bit more specific about the charges. Um, t they say that Tate recruited victims by making them believe they were interested in genuine relationships, then transported them to live in houses where they were under constant surveillance and forced to act in porn videos under threats of violence. The videos would then be sold online. So, I mean, those are, those are some, some substantive charges that it would seem there must be a good deal of evidence. For, I mean, there has to be material evidence for, if we're talking about porn videos, we'll see which of the alleged victims are willing to testify against Tate and, and, and support these claims. Tate has said that there was no victim in this. He took to Twitter in the last few days saying there are no victims here. Um, so I think it's a matter of time before we see how this pans out. But it does, it does seem clear that this seems to be something more substantive and more closer to the kind of exploitative uh, behavior for commercial ends than uh, like your typical prostitution scenario, sex work scenario. Does that, does that does that feel right to you, Elizabeth? Um, again, I think we just have to separate the things that are Andrew Tate's persona from the things that the police are saying. And the things that police are saying may well end up being true, but even bad people, I think, deserve a presumption of innocence or at least not a presumption of guilt. So I wouldn't say just because he said, like, some very misogynistic things or or very you know about the way he treats women that he's coercive and things like that i wouldn't necessarily say that because that is his online persona that we should immediately think that anything police are saying about him is true it might well very very, very well be true i just don't think that we we can say for sure just because that the police are saying that that's what's going on hmm. well thank you so much for that liz that was very very helpful really appreciate it thank you and we'll have more rising right after this. Congressman George Santos just can't seem to keep himself out of controversy after first being accused of lying on his resume. More disturbing reporting about Santos's past has emerged. A disabled veteran, Richard Ossoff, now claims that in 2016, George Santos promised to help him raise funds for his six, sick dog's life-saving surgery, but the money disappeared, or he disappeared with the money, rather, after $3,000 in funds were raised. I'm sorry I'm laughing. This is not funny, it's just, but it's, it's just, just so, so wild. Sapphire, the pit bull, died from cancer shortly thereafter. Not funny at all. I'm a dog owner myself. It's just wild that this person was elected it's, it's, to Congress. It's, it's bizarre. I'm waiting for the true, the e-Hollywood story, the Hallmark version of this to be written because it, 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 it's, it's better than fiction. Well, Ossoff also said that Santos went by a different name, Anthony Devolver, when asked how he determined Santos was indeed Anthony. Here's what he told CNN. I saw his face and I knew I sort of recognized him a little bit because we had been Facebook friends while, it was, while, the, while the campaign was going on. Um, so I knew what he looked like and I knew his voice and that was the only thing I knew about him. And I saw him on TV and I was like, I got a feeling in the pit of my stomach about this guy. Who is he and why do I recognize him? Mm. And then that was in December, right around Christmas time. Just about a week ago, he was in the Capitol and there was a bunch of uh, reporters following around asking us questions like that's about the only thing you see him you know, anymore. And one of them said, what's your name today? Is it Anthony DeVolder or is it George Santos? Uh, so it's so, so you had the pit in your stomach in, in December and then when that name was said, Correct. A week ago, right. then you realized. I was sick, oh. yeah. To see that somebody like that that could do something that, 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 that dastardly could raise to such high position, and it, yeah. it, it, that shouldn't be right. That shouldn't happen. 
According to ABC News, Santos denies that claim and, as of this taping, has not responded to a request for comment. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Also new this week, MSNBC columnist Marissa Cabas reported yesterday that a Brazilian drag queen now contends she wants new Santos, or rather Anthony, to perform in drag under the stage name Katara. Santos denied the reporting in a tweet this morning, writing, quote, the most recent obsession from the media claiming that I am a drag queen or performed as a drag queen is categorically false. The media continues to make outrageous claims about my life while I am working to deliver results. I will not be distracted nor phased by this. Despite all the controversy, Republican House leadership rewarded Santos with two committee assignments last week. He will be sitting on the Science and Small Business Committees. Some of his colleagues have called on him to step down, but Santos says he has no plans to do so. Now, I think it's worth saying, first and foremost, that the idea of, you know, the, the kind of aspect of him potentially being a drag performer that's remarkable isn't because it's wrong or weird or kooky or problematic in the least to be a drag performer. It's that, one, it's such a departure from who he's presented himself as being and seems to be one in a long list of lies that really cut to the issue of his long-term credibility or <laughs> whether or not his mental state is really that you want in a Congress member. And also, too, he belongs to a party that just in the past week or 10 days has promulgated a number of laws, including one that would ban drag performances outright as something that is immoral and something that should not be allowed legally in the country. Which is such a shame because, as you pointed out in your radar this week, there is a proud tradition of drag performance within the New York Republican Party, where he has been elected. (laughs) America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, famously donning drag to romance to seduce a future Republican president, Donald Trump. I like how you put that. I was going to say he was motorboated by Donald Trump. That's a a lot more elegant. Your dirty mind after viewing the Martin Luther King (laughs) Memorial statue, you just, it's R-rated, the stuff coming out of Brianna these days. Look, it's not me. It's the news that's R-rated. The news keeps being R-rated. Or not R-rated in this case, but just very colorful. I mean, look, do you, let me me do some Democrat critique here. I do think it's very naive to think that social pressure, social controversy controversy will necessarily mean that this guy doesn't get committee appointments or or is asked to step down. The, the reality is that politicians do way worse things than lie about who they are. They lie about whether <coughs> they'll deliver for the American people, who has purchased them, and who is really setting their agenda. And that's a much bigger yes. crime than coming yes. out late in life and not telling people that you're a drag performer. Yes, calling your brother to make sure he buys a bunch of Pfizer stock or, or sells your stock in whatever, or, or having Facebook stop while, stock while ranting against them or regulating. That is the really crooked stuff that our current in good standing members of Congress are up to. I, yeah, they're not, they're not dressing up in drag. Who cares? I mean, Who the, cares? And the dog stuff, it's not great. It doesn't make him seem like a very good person. Very it, look, it makes him seem kind of like a thief and a crook, frankly. But, you know, yeah. uh, what was it, Romney that strapped the dogs to the roof of the car on vacation? And they well, were... that was an accident, I think. Okay, I'm just saying, the mistakes were sad, made. Yeah. Th- things happen, and it doesn't impact any of these people's political careers is the point I'm trying to make.
Yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> Joe Biden was uh, was not able to run for president, or had to drop out the first time you know, eighty thousand years ago for plagiarizing a speech. Yep. That was the thing Joe Biden was known for yep. for years. Yep. Was that? Oh, he was the guy who plagiarized that speech. Um, Hillary Clinton and a million other people exaggerated how. The politicians love to start the story. Yeah, I went to I went to Iraq to see what was going on, and oh, we came under fire, and you know, I I took out <laughs> ten Iraqi jihadists myself, and yeah. the story gets more. It's a it's like a it's a, the fish was this big, the fish was this big, the right. fish was this big. Right. They all love those, and they all do that. Yeah, Joe Biden. I saw. Uh, I think it was a speech he was giving on MLK uh, weekend. Was talking about how he grew up in the black church. He just he, mm-hmm. he he spent so much time in the black church. Every Sunday, I went to the black church, and people were like, mm. and then a few days later, there was this video of him in the middle of a, a gospel performance at a black church. Yeah. I think during all of these commemorative events, standing there extremely awkwardly um, next to I think um, uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, who was like clapping everybody else, is like having a good time. <laughs> And Joe Biden is standing there looking like uh, he doesn't know what to do with his hands. Not like someone, I would say, who grew up in the black church. Kamala Harris say uh, she was being interviewed and and, and said she liked some uh, black musical artist Oh, it was the marijuana stuff. She was on The Breakfast Club, and they asked her if she smoked pot. She says, of course I do. I've smoked pot before. My dad's Jamaican, which her dad, who is like an esteemed very straight-laced professor, did not like at all. Um, And then to gild the story, she talked about listening in college to Tupac, I think it was, Mm -hmm. while smoking pot. And the the timeline timeline doesn't work out. (laughs) Like, Tupac was also, like, in high school or something when that would have happened. Um, So, yeah, politicians lie. I think it matters more than when they lie about substantive policy than about pot or drag performances. Um, I do think that this goes somewhat to character. Again, we were talking a little bit about evidentiary standards and when you can bring in evidence. You know, the idea that George Santos has committed like a a financial fraud on this guy with the with the dog situation, I think, is material. Um, I wouldn't trust him to be on any committee that. is budget related or has anything to do with American taxpayer you, money? You wouldn't trust him to, to like coordinate the bake sale. I wouldn't trust him to babysit <laughs> my friend's dog. <laughs> um, but he's here now, and people have to figure out uh, what to do with him. And people in New York, and Democrats have a lot of uh, responsibility on their hands as well because it was because the New York races were handled so poorly, the redistricting was handled so poorly, um, that George Santos is in this position to begin with. They, apparently, all of the intel was there on him, and it just wasn't used. It wasn't publicized until after the, he already won his election. And now I, I, Democrats are doing a victory lap over this George Santos stuff, and I don't know that they have earned that right, given that but for them, George Santos probably wouldn't even be in Congress. Indeed. Well, we will continue to look for more interesting George Santos stories, and we will have more rising right after this. The FDA and CDC have seen early signs of a possible linkage between the Pfizer bivalent COVID shot and strokes. Reuters reports that a U.S. health safety monitoring system flagged that adults 65 and older were more likely to suffer an ischemic stroke in the first 21 days after receiving Pfizer and BioNTech's updated COVID-19 booster than during days 22 to 24. 
Meanwhile, over at the World Economic Forum's meeting in Davos, Moderna CEO Stephanie Bansell criticized countries that had scientific, political, and public debate about the safety of COVID-19 vaccines. Let's listen. The extent of this misinformation when it, came, when it comes to vaccination, I think, has as a, somebody who works in the media, I, I mean, that was just overwhelming to see all of that across all the channels, right? Yes, and I exactly agree with panelists, which is, I think, in some countries, you know, you saw scientific debate in national TV, prime time. So you can imagine how people were scared. You know, Ben has have said, you know, a lot of political debate in some countries, and the U.S. was kind of maybe one of the worst places in the world. And you saw the differences of countries where all the parties would say, you know, this has been approved by the regulators, clinical studies have been done, you should get your, 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 your vaccines and so on. And then, as Seth said, I mean, the social media was just terrible, uh, just terrible. And so at a time of uncertainty where people were scared for their loved ones, you know, Many people, you know, locked down. Uh, it, it was very hard for everybody from a just mental health standpoint. Uh, when you, you capitalize with all that environment, you could see some countries where you had scientific debate and political debate and social media. If you had those three things, the vaccine rate were very, very low. Absolutely. Hmm. That goes to what I've been saying about the World Economic Forum and how they are centering disinformation as this major crisis. That really speaks to that, uh, that anger on display there that you were able to share criticism or have criticism of vaccines and vaccines policy on social media. Now, obviously, there are a lot of untrue things that have been said about vaccines on social media. There is some danger out there. Don't get me wrong at all. But some criticism, uh, certainly of the policies around requiring them, is certainly merited. And frankly, there's, is, it, it should be acceptable to debate who really needs it and, and who should get it. And to that point, we're seeing reporting from, from Reuters raising questions about the bivalent shot, which we discussed Last week, there's some question about whether it's really any effective, whether it's effective versus just the booster that was available prior to that. And yeah. then now, this, and this is actually scary because this is saying a, a stroke risk for older people, mm-hmm. which is who you would actually want, given that they're already at risk uh, of a bad COVID outcome. That was the group we've been saying. Yeah, they're they're really the ones where the the calculation for getting the vaccine or getting boosted a lot is more in favor of that because they're so at risk from COVID, unlike yeah. younger people. But now they're, they're seeing a possible risk to that age group of the bivalent itself. Yeah, so the story we talked about last week with these bivalent boosters was all about the fact that people in the scientific community, I believe at the CDC, were frustrated that certain risks associated with them hadn't been disclosed earlier. That combined with the fact that the government spent, what, $5 billion on these new bivalent vaccines, and they didn't actually have the intended effect of being more useful against the current variants, all meant that it seemed like a new thing that didn't do what it was supposed to do, that had risk factors that weren't disclosed, and the government spent a lot of money on it. So that was last week. It causes you a day of soreness and possible fatigue and maybe missing work or something. And now this week, the idea that not only is all of those things wrong with the vaccine, but that they might also have this increased risk of stroke. And again, we don't have numbers about how much bigger this risk is. It might not be like significant in terms of the decision making here. But given that we have an alternative, you're right. This is a risk. This is a highly risk group of people, people over 65, people who should the scientific community recommends getting boosted to protect them from even worse outcomes from COVID. But this is an all or nothing proposition. This is should we use the earlier iterations of the booster or should we use this new bivalent 
vaccine. And I think people need to start asking more questions about the lobbying efforts various pharmaceutical companies are pursuing in order to get the yeah. government to, to buy these enormous and very and expensive contracts when we already have things that already exist to fulfill those needs. should we consider needs. prior infection? I mean, prior infection, and a lot of medical experts say this too, counts as one shot, essentially. So if you've been, if you've had the vac, if you're an older person and you've had the vaccine and you've already had COVID and you've had one booster, maybe you don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm saying that might be something to consider of whether then also getting the bivalent is necessary. Sure, but, but just presumably in the context of this story, uh, just talking about whether or not this new bivalent booster should have been recommended. Yeah. You know, there are plenty of people who haven't had a prior infection or haven't had one in over a year and, and need to get boosted. So the issue is- Well, maybe you recommend why, it them, but I'm saying there's no, we why don't this, talk about these things differently. Sure, but why this booster and not another booster? Yeah. Um, why are we, why, why, why is there this like a uh, duplicity happening, uh, yeah. du du these duplicates coming out of really our market? Because they really want to rush this one to market, yeah. At the, at the same time yeah. that they're, the, the, the left conversation, this comes back to the Twitter files, yeah. leftists who are advocating for making these things available all around the world so that we don't have new variants emerging in parts of the world where they have no protection against this thing, were suppressed on Twitter. I mean, all of this comes back to the pharmaceutical industry pursuing profit over the, at the expense mm -hmm. of the actual health and welfare the American people, and at great cost to the American taxpayer. And health bureaucrats and the, health, the companies and bureaucrats in health agencies pressuring social media companies to crack down on any dissent on any of the points we're raising. Yeah, although in, I, Including I, the points for Pfizer's bottom line, as you pointed out. They yeah. crack down on activists who wanted exactly what you just said I, to happen. I, I'm just trying to really focus on what started this, though, because as the story we covered last week said, scientists at the CDC were frustrated that mm -hmm. they had information sure. misrepresented to them by the pharmaceutical companies. So sometimes, I'm not, CDC is going to make mistakes, but we can fire the CDC and the mistakes are still going to get made because the pharmaceutical companies are there promoting the misinformation in the first place. And I think we got to cut the, the, the hydra's head off, you know, at, at the root. I'm mixing a thousand metaphors, but you get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, but very interesting, very bold of them to be yeah. complaining so much about all the disinformation at Davos. Yeah. Um, they don't, want, they don't want scrutiny. They yeah. don't want criticism. Absolutely. All right, that does it for us today and for the week. Tomorrow on Rising, you can catch highlights of the week's best segments. And we will be back with you here in the studio next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also available on Roku and other streaming services. So catch us there as well. See you next week. Take care.